And tonight we're going to begin in Nehemiah chapter 2. We are in the midst of Nehemiah's portion of the leadership where he's restoring the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls and the gates that had been torn down in the Babylonian invasion. And tonight our subject is an opposed city. And it's only natural that we get to this this part, because if you ever try to do anything big, do anything great, if you ever try to make a difference in the world, you're going to make enemies. You're going to face opposition. If you're not facing opposition, then you're really not moving the needle. You're not changing things. Uh, Every time you take a stand for something, that means there's going to be someone against you. So it's only natural for Nehemiah to face opposition at this point. Some people will make the mistake of thinking, I'm getting uh, resistance. There there are people who are angry at me. I'm I'm, I'm on the wrong track. Not necessarily. Listen to what they're saying. Weigh it with God's word. But it may mean you're on the right track. And in Nehemiah's case, of course, he, he was on the right track. Opposition takes many different forms. But maybe the most common form is deceit, lies. You know, that, that's the most effective tool that Satan has used throughout time. All the way back from the very beginning, how did he take down Adam and Eve? With deceit. God said, in the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the serpent said the opposite, right? You shall not surely die. A plain lie. There's no question about it. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were children of the devil. Your father is the devil. And he said, he's the father of lies and he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. It's the character of Satan to lie. You know, we serve a God who is a never lying God. Titus 1, 2. If God were to lie, he would no longer be God because it's in the character of God to always be truthful. And Jesus says in John 8, 44, it's the character of the devil to lie. So be foolish ever to listen to it. Opposition often takes the form of deceit. We were introduced to three very powerful opponents of Nehemiah last week. And this is why I wanted you to turn to chapter 2. We're going to start here where we left off. Now they, all three of them had kind of funny names. But don't let that fool you. These were very serious opponents. And just to Review a little bit about who they were from last week. If you look at chapter 2, verse 19, uh, they are listed there. Number one, you have Sanballat the Horonite. He was governor of the Samaritans, which means he may have had some control over the territories that used to belong to Israel. But, you know, we're now that region that would eventually be known as uh, Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. So that was Sanballat. And then you have Tobiah, the Ammonite servant. And that name, Tobiah, is a Jewish name. And so it's likely this is a Jew who migrated east of the Jordan River. And he, we know from historical records, he and his family 
maintained control over that area called Ammon uh, for many centuries, up to the third century. And then the third guy here is Geshem the Arab. And he ruled, according to historical records, with his son over a league of Arabian tribes, which took control of Moab and Edom, also in the east, uh, around the fifth century, just right before Nehemiah's day. All three were very powerful, dangerous foes, governors of provinces surrounding Judea. So just think of it as neighboring nations. They, you know, in our analogy, it'd be like Mexico and Canada getting together to oppose us, except it's a much smaller region, of course, back then, uh, much more localized, the opposition. Now, uh, as I said, one of the most effective tools of opposition is lies. And we see great illustrations of this in tonight's lesson. What we're going to look at are six different forms of deceit that these men used to try to stop the progress on the city of Jerusalem. And with every form of deceit, you have Nehemiah giving an appropriate response. Again, Nehemiah is just a wonderful example for us tonight on how to face opposition to God's work. So let's start with the first example. The first example of deceit that we see in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, is the misleading question. In debate, you learn to ask good questions. And sometimes the questions are designed to mislead the audience. Uh, questions are very tricky because you're not saying anything outwardly, but you're suggesting things to people just by asking the question. Every good lawyer knows this. Every good debater knows this. And uh, Nehemiah's enemies, they knew it too. So look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. Here is the lie the, in the form of the misleading question. When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshub the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So in asking this question, oh, we're not saying you're rebelling against the king, we're just asking. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They introduced the notion of treason. You can imagine bystanders standing around for all of this. It's a very effective strategy. In fact, it's the strategy Jesus' enemies used to get him crucified. Luke 23. Look at the accusations there. The final accusation, I think there are three of them. The final one is that he calls himself a king, making himself a rival to Caesar. And of course, Jesus did claim to be the Christ, which means king. But as he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He, not a rival to Caesar. He had no rivals. He was over Caesar and everyone else, being the sovereign ruler of the universe. But it was very effective. It got him crucified. And these men knew how afraid people were of a treasonous leader. But Nehemiah had the perfect response. He responded by pulling everyone together. We talked about this last week. Look at what he says in verse 20. I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. 
but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is one of the best things Nehemiah did is identified with his people and spoke of the community instead of individuals. Look at how many times the personal pronouns are used there. He, us, we will arise and build, and then there's you. Uh, you're not a part. You have no portion with us. And we talked about chapter 3 last week, how those phrases next to him, next to him, next to him, after him, after him, after him, are indicative of community effort. So Nehemiah, he was able to fight this first lie of the misleading question by pulling everyone together and showing them the difference between themselves and the enemies. So let's go on to the second example. The second form of deceit we come into is the exaggeration. This is in chapter 4. If you want to turn your Bibles to me at Nehemiah chapter 4. There's some very imaginative exaggerations going on here. Sanballat, he starts, and here's how it reads. I'll start with verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that, they, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And then this is kind of funny. Uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, he was beside him, and then he chimes in. Yeah, you know, he's waiting on the big guy to speak first, and then he, he sees that it's safe to say something, so he chimes in, and he has kind of a ridiculous exaggeration here. He said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. He probably thought he was pretty clever in saying a little fox can break that wall down. Obviously an exaggeration, right? But here's why exaggerations are so effective, because they're, they're based on a kernel of truth. They, they just take a little bit of truth and they twist it and build on it, and they can be very convincing sometimes. Because you look back over it, were the Jews feeble? You could argue that they were feeble. Uh, were they trying to restore the city? Yeah, that's what they were doing. Were they planning to sacrifice? Yeah. They weren't going to finish in a day, but they were on a, a fast timeline. They were trying to get done fast. Um, they were trying to build up a wall that was rubbish. And no, foxes wouldn't be able to break it down, but the walls were weak at that moment in time. So there was a kernel of truth to what they were saying. But Nehemiah, he has a great response to this. And I've been looking forward to getting to this response. We've talked about Nehemiah's prayer life. He did not wait until it was night and everybody was in bed and then get on his knees and bow his head and pray long, eloquent prayers. Now, maybe he did that, but that's not what's recorded. The prayers of Nehemiah that are recorded are quick prayers in the midst of, of um, trials or in the midst of, of a problem or a challenge. And this is how he responds to the exaggeration. Now look at this prayer. 
chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Now, I'm imagining Sanballat and Tobias standing right in front of him. And they say this, and he doesn't respond to them. Maybe he lifts his eyes up to heaven. Maybe he casts them down to the earth. Maybe he bows his head or he just speaks to no one who's right there in front of him. And he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. It's a pretty angry prayer, right? Do you ever pray like that? Lord, give him over to be plundered. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, being plundered is, is not a great thing. It would be like saying, Lord, and maybe you've prayed this before, let him be arrested, prosecuted, imprisoned. Let what he has brought on himself fall on his shoulders let him get what he deserves. Now here's what's genius about this prayer. He took his anger out on someone who could absorb it. And someone who knew his heart. He didn't go home and take it out on his wife. He didn't take his frustrations out on the people he was leading. He didn't beat himself up. He didn't internalize it. He found the proper outlet for his anger. Now, he's respectful here. You see, he's not blaming God, and he's mad because of their disrespect for God. He says, they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And he says this all in front of the people. I wonder if that's... I know this has never happened in front of me, and I've never used this before. But maybe we ought to, even if we don't verbalize it, maybe we ought to get into the practice of facing opposition with prayer like this. When somebody is wronging us, treating us unfairly, misrepresenting the truth, hurting us, can we stop right there and channel our anger in prayer to God? There is a respectful way to do that. And I think Nehemiah is modeling good behavior here. And look how focused it kept him. After the prayer, Nehemiah and the builders continued to make progress. The wall was halfway done, and the people, verse 6 says, had a mind to work. You know what happens when you're gossiping and you're talking about this fight that somebody had? You're not working. They weren't talking about Sembalat and Tobiah. They weren't talking about a fox breaking down a wall or anything. They got right back to work. The exaggeration failed because of the response. Let's go to the third form, propaganda. This is in Nehemiah chapter 4 as well. The Jews' progress angered Nehemiah's opponents even more. And uh, verse 8 says, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Very common tactic in war, right? Create chaos with lies. What's the best way to do that? Propaganda. Propaganda uses pamphlets, books, 
uh, in our day and age, the internet, uh, broadcast, radio and television, podcasts, media of any kind, music to, to convince people that what they thought was reality really isn't reality, to propagate a lie. That's where the word propaganda comes from. It's the propagation of half-truths and lies. Verse 10 is an example of propaganda. Now, it's not obvious on its face, but in the Anchor Bible Commentary, uh, the writer who, who did the volume on Nehemiah looks at this structurally and says, what we're looking at in verse 10 is a song. Now, in translation, the song is not very clever, and I don't know in the original language if it was very clever, but it seems to be something that was being passed around and said, either chanted or sung to music. And here's how it goes. In Judah it was said, so that introductory phrase suggests a saying that was being passed around and repeated over and over again, maybe taught to children. Here's what it was. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So, you know, you try to put that to music today, it won't sound very good. But in that time, that may have been a song, it may have been a saying that was memorized easily and repeated. And in Judah, people began to say that. And that propaganda was beginning to affect the builders. And so Nehemiah had to do something about it. The enemies figured that if they gave the propaganda time to do its work, verse 11 says, uh, they would not, the people would not know what was happening till we come among them and killed them and stopped the work. So at first it seems like the plot is working. Look at verse 12. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, just stop. This is going to fail. Have you heard the song? It's going to fail. But Nehemiah responded with faith. Now, well, let's, let's look at verse 14. You can see the faith on display here in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them, he said. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then in verse 20, he adds, our God will fight for us. So he, he came at the propaganda with faith. But I want you to see something very interesting. And you see this across the board in, in all the biblical heroes. Their faith was practical. Okay, their faith wasn't just, God, take over. I'm going to sit here and wait till you're done. Faith was accompanied by common sense strategies, seeing that perhaps God is fighting by giving you opportunities and tools and equipping you with people that can help you accomplish your purpose. And so in verses, um, where is it? Verses 15 through 23, you see Nehemiah doing a lot of practical things. These strategies like alternating soldiers with builders, uh, providing weapons for the builders themselves, developing a scheme for rallying help quickly on the spot when it was threatened, and arranging for the people to spend the night in the city where it was safer. He did these things, and it's not because 
He didn't believe in God. He believed that God gave him leadership qualities to use. He believed that there were weapons there to use. So faith is not just being totally passive and not playing. You have a role to play in your faith. You think about David and Goliath. David was a shepherd who had killed lions and bears with a slingshot. And he knew he could kill Goliath. He was giving God the credit, but he still went out and got the stones. And he slung the sling, slung the stone into the giant's forehead. And there's not a miracle that takes place there, but it's all attributed to the faith of David. Uh, salvation is an issue. We argue all the time over whether salvation is by faith alone. Ignoring the fact that faith provokes us to action. Faith is trust in God that will do whatever He asks us to do. And so if He asks us to repent of sin, that's what we do. If He asks us to confess Jesus is the Son of God, that's what we're going to do. If He asks us to be baptized, that's what we're going to do. Live a faithful life, we're going to do that by faith. Nehemiah shows working faith here in Nehemiah chapter 4. And that's how he fought the propaganda. Whenever people are taking action, the propaganda becomes clearly dishonest really quickly. Uh, you can tell the frauds from the genuine people. The next example is flattery. This is in chapter 6. The wall is now completed, uh, but the gates have not been set in the doorways. So it's not completely finished, and Sam Ballot, he tries again. He's running out of time here. His goal is to keep the wall from being built. So he and Geshem this time, they kind of change their tone and try a different approach. They send a message to Nehemiah. And here's what the message reads. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. So now it sounds like these governors are wanting Nehemiah to meet with them as equals. Maybe this is a diplomatic mission. But Nehemiah wasn't fooled. He knew, verse 2, they intended to do me harm. So what was his response? He refused to be distracted. He says in verse 3, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You have to be aware of flattery. It, all, it could have gotten Nehemiah killed. The stakes are lower than that with us, but flattery can be dangerous. A lot of times when you receive flattery, it feels really good. You want to hear more of it. But somebody's trying to use you when they're saying it. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And we can be wiser than that. And we don't need to surround ourselves with people who always tell us what we want to hear. You know, we need friends who will tell us the truth even when it's hard to hear it. Now, I always go back to Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So beware of flattery. Because here, it could have gotten Nehemiah killed. Now we have the anonymous report. We're all familiar with this. Let's look at the example in Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. 
And uh, here is the lie, the anonymous report. It's in another letter. And verses 6 and 7 read, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. You can see how dangerous it would be for this report to get to Persia. Now, have we seen anything in Nehemiah that tells us he had a desire to become king? King of Jerusalem or king of Persia? No. He was a cupbearer. He was comfortable with that position. He was in Judea for a limited period of time, planned to go back to Persia when he was finished. Nothing about this is true. But how do they sell it? It is reported among the nations. Geshem says it too. Which nations? Well, just a, a lot of nations are saying it. Okay, have you heard this kind of thing before? Elders, have you heard this? Deacons, have you heard this? You know, people are saying. A lot of people are upset. Somebody came to me in confidence, and I can't tell you who said it, but how many, how many criticisms, unfair complaints have been introduced by those words? And it may be true, it may not be true, but the position you put the person being criticized in is they have no recourse. What do they say? They have to either ignore the criticism or cave to it. And they're not allowed to have a discussion and explain themselves to the person who probably needs a little more information. And that's not the way we're supposed to handle our problems with one another. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you know your brother has something against you, go to your brother. Be reconciled to your brother. In Matthew 18, 15, the first step in confronting sin in somebody's life is to go to them in private. Not go behind their back. Not, not go ask the elders to take care of your dirty work and say, now listen, leave my name out of it. I'm just trying to help. That, that's not helpful at all. If you love these people, you will talk to them and communicate with them as someone who loves them. We don't have to be afraid of one another if we come to each other in the right spirit. So how did Nehemiah respond to the letter? He responded with logic. Let's look at uh, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. What does he say? Then I sent him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Very plain spoken. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And now another prayer. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah is not losing his focus. He's staying on point. One last example. 
This is the example of false teaching. More overt, perhaps, than the others, but uh, these men are getting, getting desperate, so they put this prophet, or man regarded to be a prophet, named Shemaiah, up to something. He's an old prophet, and Nehemiah may have respected him before this happened, but he goes to Nehemiah with this strange, strange story. So we just read from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. Go to verse 10. That's where this all begins. Nehemiah says, I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Now we know somebody put him up to this, right? Because it just sounds strange. This homebound man, maybe he is regarded as a prophet, so he knows things that people can't know otherwise. But he's suggesting that Nehemiah go hide in the temple. And Nehemiah saw right through it. He said, verse 11, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Now there's, there's more explanation as you read on down. Verse 12, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Then a prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So evidently this man wasn't the only prophet who was talking false prophecies to try to intimidate Nehemiah into doing the wrong thing. Why would it have been wrong for him to hide in the temple? The temple was not an asylum for criminals. It was not a place to run and hide in. It's God's holy dwelling place. And it had been fairly newly built. And people are still learning how to respect it. Uh, by the way, pagan temples were treated this way all the time. The Temple of Diana in Ephesus served as a bank, a museum, of course a place of worship, and also an asylum for people who were running from the law or running from avengers who were trying to kill them. You weren't allowed to go in and shed blood in that pagan temple. And maybe they thought Nehemiah would treat God's temple this way, but he wasn't about to do it because he knew that he'd lose all credit with his people if he showed that fear. And he had to show them that he had courage and he truly believed what he'd been saying, that God will save them and lead them to success. How did he know they were wrong? Well, this is the key for false prophets. You can always listen to what they're saying and weigh that with reality or with the Word of God. So Jesus said this in Matthew 7 when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. The fruit of a teacher is his teaching. So listen to the teaching. See if it aligns with God's word properly in context. If it doesn't, 
you've got a false teacher on your hands. It's plain and simple. It doesn't matter how eloquent he is or how attractive he may be or how culturally acceptable and palatable his words are. If it doesn't match up with the word, it's false. That's hard to see sometimes when we have a relationship to a person giving us falsehood or respect for somebody. But people lie, and we can't be naive about that. Six times they tried to deceive Nehemiah. And if he had been the gullible type, if he had a weak personality, if he was a coward, this whole project would have fallen apart before it even had a chance to get started. But he stayed firm. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want you to notice that we looked at six cases. And in four of the six cases, we see Nehemiah in prayer. Not these big, long prayers, but these short prayers like we just read. Oh, my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess who remember these people. Uh, the angry prayer in chapter 4. The other brief prayers, just a sentence long. I think we should get into the habit of doing this if you're not already in the habit of doing it. I, most Christians, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but most Christians don't pray like that. We wait until all distractions are out of the way. And we try to recall the entire day and go over it in our minds. Or we pray at mealtime or we pray you know, at our kids' bedside or when things are really hard and tough. But through the day, meet your daily frustrations with prayer. That's what Nehemiah did. You can see the kind of focus it brought to him. The city was opposed, but they kept building. And that's where we'll stop tonight. Are there any comments or questions anybody would like to make, James? Right, direct violation of the law of God. And we saw the, the frame, you know, Nea, um, sorry, Ezra is around. And Ezra's work was to reestablish, restore the law. That had been done first. And Nehemiah wasn't going to come in there and undo the work that Ezra did. And so there's another lesson there that you may play a different role, but you're on a team. You need to work together in this process. That's a good, good point. Thank you. All right, thank you for your attention. Next week we're having the Thanksgiving devotional, and if you can think to do it, please let me know if you can participate. Leading a song, uh, saying a prayer, reading a scripture. You can tell me tonight. Really, the best way is to text me or email me. That way I have a record of it, and I'm not relying on my memory. But if you want to just tell me, I'll take that too. All right, thank you.